Okay, here we go. We live in a uh, day and age where uh, we're often encouraged to keep an open mind, um, to believe you know, that anything is possible regardless of the facts, to rule out the obvious in search of the mysterious. And you know, what's interesting is that I came across a story that I think illustrates uh, the foolishness of such thinking. You know, we've become a society that has done that. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but it's like we throw out the obvious, we throw out the common sense, we throw out the things that are obvious to everybody for the sake of the one person who sees things totally different than everybody else. Stories, uh... (laughs) Party of one? Is there more room back there? Hey, they can make room for you. People are wondering if you've still come here. It's been a while. Good, thanks, and that'll be it for you. Okay. <laughs> anyway, story's told, it's in a murder trial. The uh, defense attorney was crying. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> in a murder trial, the defense attorney was uh, cross-examining a pathologist, and here's uh, what had taken place. The attorney said, before you signed the death certificate, had you taken the pulse? The attorney said, or the coroner said, no. The attorney said, well, did you listen to the heart? The coroner said, no again. The attorney said, well, did you check for breathing? The coroner said, no, I didn't. The attorney looked and said, so when you signed the death certificate, you weren't sure the man was dead, were you? The coroner said, well, let me put it this way. The man's brain was sitting in a jar on my desk said, but I guess it's possible he could be out there practicing law somewhere. (laughs) What's the point? The point is this. Uh, We all need to be open and teachable, but not so open-minded that our brains fall out. You know... The last time we were together, we began to a uh, series of messages that focus our attention on what we call finishing, finishing the work. Finishing the work. The finishing the work that Jesus began to do and entrusted to his followers to complete until the day of his return. And as we turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts, if you've got to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Um, as we look at this, I was reminded recently of the words a famous Hollywood producer once said. He said this, For a movie to be successful, it must start with an earthquake and work its way up to a climax. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. But, uh, you know, if you think about it, when you read the book of Acts, uh, Luke certainly didn't follow that formula when he wrote this book inspired by the Spirit. You know, except for the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ that we'll talk about, there isn't anything really dynamic or exciting or dramatic that takes place in this first chapter. In fact, this first chapter records the command of Jesus to his followers to finish the work that he began. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, which was the first account that we're going to see, the the first account said, as I mentioned a minute ago, that Jesus, to complete the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. As I mentioned last time, there are certain things that are finished, that are complete. We need to recognize that and understand that there's nothing that you and I can do to add to or complete the work that Jesus did on the cross on behalf of those who would trust in him and receive him for the forgiveness of their sins. That work is finished. We call that the redemptive work of Christ. That's done. There's nothing any of us can do. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing more that God expects of any of us. He is completely satisfied with what Jesus did in its totality his death and ultimately his resurrection from the dead. 
And uh, as we look at that, it's important to understand it. But there are things that Jesus began to do and now will turn over and trust to those who follow him, put their faith in him, to continue to do until the day that Jesus returns. And that's what we're going to look at. What Jesus began to do and to teach in his earthly body, he continued to do through his spiritual body, which we know as the church or those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. The collective group of believers here on this earth is the church and he, has, and he has entrusted to us the work that he began that we are to finish. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to take a look at some of the resources that were given to us so that we can complete the task that he has uh, left for us to do. And the first says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. If you recall from our last time together, there were six resources that we are given so that we can complete the task that has been given to us or entrusted to us. The first resource was that of the message that we just see in verses 1 and 2. And ultimately, in order for us to finish the work that Jesus began, it's imperative that we know and understand the message that God has for the, for the world. You know, what is it that God wants people to know? What's the message he wants us to share that we have heard, and the reason that we have heard it is because someone was faithful to share it with us. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. There was a specific message that every person who has ever come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ had to hear prior to coming to faith in Christ. And the message is critical because it's without that message the world can never be right you and I as individuals can never be right with God. We must understand and know the message. And in fact, as I was going through that passage I shared earlier in Luke 2, I came across Luke chapter 4 in some reading this week I want to share with you. If you've got your Bibles, turn back to Luke chapter 4 because there's a message that Jesus declared to the world and the message in part is found in this passage in Luke chapter 4 starting with verse 14. It says in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, we know that this was the first account because in Acts chapter 1, he says, the first account that I wrote to you, O beloved or most excellent Theophilus, he then continues in the book of Acts. This goes back to the first account, which was the Gospel of Luke. And he says in verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and, and, and uh, was praised by all. It says, and he came to Nazareth, which had been brought up, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. You notice that as Jesus came, he began to teach. Again, we've learned that he began to do and began to teach about the kingdom of God, the things of God, to, uh, to tell people the truth about God, what they need to know about God, what you need to know, what I need to know, how to be right with God. And it says, as was his custom, as he came into the synagogue, he went and he picked up a scroll, the scripture, and he would begin to read. And from that, he would teach and instruct the truth. And people were amazed at that because he spoke as one with authority. It was though he understood and knew scripture better than anyone since it was inspired by God. And, and obviously from the mind of God and being God, he understood the things of God because he is God. And so as he spoke, he spoke with authority. Not as often they said, not as one of the scribes or one of the others would teach. Man, there was something about Jesus and his powerful preaching that, that was like, it was from authority. It was just God himself exactly the case. God himself was speaking to them, explaining the truth. And he said that he went, was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, he stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, specifically Isaiah, the scroll, and found the place, the specific place that he wanted to go to, to teach spiritual truth. And here's what he read to them and would explain to them. 
says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Isaiah 61 was a prophecy about the coming Savior of the world. And we know that the angel, as he came to Mary and Joseph, specifically Mary, said, You'll call, you, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. The deliverer of sin would be sent into the world. God's plan would be fulfilled. And Jesus picked a specific passage, and the reason that he picked the passage was because, as we learn here in a second, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. It's like, why did you choose the passage you just chose? And what are you going to share with us, great truth that we're about to learn? What is it about that passage? And here's what he said. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the crowd went crazy. It says they were speaking well and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they were confused, saying, is this not Joseph's son? It's like, wow, this is... I mean, what Jesus was saying was that I am He who God has sent. The one that you've been waiting for. You know, oftentimes people say, well, Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a great religious leader. Jesus was all these things. And I say, well, if somebody was a great person, could they be a liar and a deceiver? No, absolutely not. So, well, let me ask you something. If Jesus claimed to be more than just a teacher, if he claimed to be more than just a religious leader, a founder of some religion, if he claimed to be something other than that and it wasn't true, would he not be a liar? Oh, absolutely. Would he be a great teacher? Well, he couldn't be. Well, obviously not. Do you realize that Jesus claimed to be God? He claimed to be God in human flesh. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. He claimed to be the fulfillment of all the promises of God that He would send a Savior into the world and it would be through Him that man could be reconciled with God. Jesus made that claim. And those who heard Him recognized it and understood it. And they were amazed at what He just said. Can this really be possible? Is He really the Savior of the world? Is He really Messiah? Jesus at one point in John 8.58 said to them, Before Abraham existed, I am. And the crowd that heard it recognized that he had claimed to be equal to God, the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, who said to Moses, when Moses said, when I go in to see Pharaoh, who should I say sent me? And God said, tell him I am. Jesus said, before Abraham even existed, I am. And the crowd understood that claim to be God. And those who hated him picked up stones and were going to kill him. And they tried to, but God did not allow it because his purpose hadn't been fulfilled. But they understood what he was saying. In John 14, Jesus said to Philip, he said, Hey, Philip said, if you're going to the Father, show us the way. <laughs> Jesus said, Philip, how long have I been with you that you don't get it by now? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For I and the Father am one. And there's no way to the Father but through me. See, Jesus understood and made it clear that He is the Savior of the world. So for those of us who come in contact with people say, well, you know what, I believe He was a good teacher, a great person, a religious leader, blah, 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 blah. You know what, that's not their option. Their option is you either believe that He is the Savior of the world or you believe that He's a liar and He's a phony and that He's not authentic. There's no option in between. You can't have the option of saying, well, I believe he's a great teacher, but I don't believe that he is the Savior of the world. I don't believe that he's God in human flesh. That's not our option. He didn't give us that option. He claimed to be God, and rightfully so, because that he is. 
And so as we look at this, the message that we see, Jesus teaching with authority, used the Scripture as his definitive point of truth or his reference. And we know that all Scripture is profitable. And it's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, as we just mentioned, to teach that which is right, for rebuke, for, for, for a rebuke of telling a person, hey, you're wrong. There are moral absolutes, despite all the nonsense in our culture. There are things that are right, and there are things that are wrong. They have always been that way because God ordained them so. They are morally absolute. They're right or wrong, inspired by God for teaching what is right for rebuke, for telling a person that you're wrong, for correction of how to get right with God, and then training how to live right before God. There are moral absolutes. And we recognize that Jesus used the Scripture to teach truth. And as we look at that, we understand that the message that we have been entrusted to share with the world is a very simple one, and we can share it in a very compact way, and that is this. Do you realize that God is the creator and sustainer of all of life? And add and that since He is the creator and sustainer of all life, that includes you and I as human beings, that God made you, God made me, He sustains our life, He gives us the very breath that we're given every day when we wake up. Every day is a gift from God. And as a result, because of that, it is His privilege and it is right to be worshipped as God, to be honored as God. But see, man doesn't want to worship Him as God. Man doesn't want to honor Him as God. Man tries to deny His very existence. We live in a culture today that tries to deny that there is a Creator. We've evolved from something, but no one can ever explain how we came about, where we came about, where the stuff was that banged together that brought us about, how we crawled out of ooze and became who we are today. No one can explain any of that. And when they try to, they just say, it happened billions and billions of years ago. You know, talk about being so open-minded, our brains fall out. It's like, oh, slap on about 37 zeros after something, and all of a sudden it's, you know, it's, it's, it's truth. Hey, but God's Word is truth. It says the heavens declare the handiwork of God. All you've got to do is look around and say, hey, this just didn't happen. This isn't random. This occurred. There's got to be a creator because everything else in life that we see that has any substance or form was what came from the mind of somebody who created it or thought it out. So, but God created us, but man didn't like that, so we rebelled against him when we turned our back. In a historic moment of time, we learned that through Adam, sin entered into the world. God commanded, Adam said no, and he rebelled. And sin entered the world, and with sin came death. And all of us are guilty as a result. When Adam sinned, he, every one of us as humanity fell into sin with him, so to speak. He represented us, and we are born with the sin defect. We're all born alienated in rebellion against God. It's important that we remind ourselves of this message because there's so many other messages out there that conflict with what we're sharing. And the bottom line of all of it is, is that you know, the, the worst news possible is every person is born alienated from God. All you've got to do is see a young child and realize that it's foolishness, the Bible says, is bound up in the heart of a child. And we know from Scripture that, the, the fool who says in, that it's the fool who says in his heart there is no God. And so we realize that even in a small child, the first words that most children learn or say is no. Pick that up. No. Do this. No. Why? It's bound up in our hearts. The evidence is overwhelming. And because of that, we are condemned before God. We are condemned and we're judged before God and we're all on the road to hell. A place of eternal torment and damnation. A place of absolute no hope. You know, I was thinking about that the other day. Can you imagine... Hell, a place of eternal torment with no hope, separated from God. When sin entered the world, death came as a result. And death is a separation, not only from our physical bodies, but spiritually we're separated and alienated from God. 
you know, in our lifetime, when things are going bad, so to speak, we always look forward to a way we're going to get out of it. There's always some hope or, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel. There's always a time when we're going through a tough time that we can look forward to something in the future that we can hang our hats on and say, because of that, I have hope, I'll get through this. But not in hell. There is no hope. It's hopeless. There's nothing to look forward to. A, a year or 10 or 20 or 50 or a billion or trillion, there's nothing to look forward to. There is no hope. And I don't know if you understand the seriousness of that, but that certainly is bad news. The bad news is every one of us are sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're condemned by God and we're judged by Him. But the great news, the good news, is the news that Jesus came to proclaim. The wonderful news of the truth is he said to them, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel. The word gospel means good news, great news. The bad news is we're all sinners separated from God, judged by God and on the road to hell, and ultimately that's where we're going to go if some intercession doesn't take place. God interceded in human history and said the good news is this. God so loved this world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in Him, speaking of Jesus, they would not be condemned. They would not perish, but have everlasting life. The bad news is man has rebelled. The good news is God continues to love humanity and set about a remedy for the problem that we have. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? God loved to the point where He sent His Son, the Savior of the world. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He is alive. And He intercedes today at the right hand of the Father for those who have put our faith and trust in Him. He continues to intercede on our behalf. And as we look at this, you go, man, is that the end of the story? And the end, it's not. Because God did all of that. Our responsibility is, how do we respond to that message? Man's responsibility is either we believe God or we reject what He says and continue to be in rebellion against Him as we already are. So we share the message and share it that God loves people, but you know what? If you don't trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you are condemned and judged by God, and you'll spend an eternity separated from in a place that we call hell. But the good news is that God loves you, and He sent Jesus Christ to die on your behalf. That whosoever would believe in Him, open invitation to anybody that, that's willing to do so. Whoever believes in Him won't perish but have everlasting life. It's important that we recognize and understand our responsibility is either to believe that message, to receive it, or to reject it. There will be no person ever condemned to hell for eternity that hasn't chosen to reject the grace and the mercy and the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. God is not unjust. God has entrusted to you and I who have heard the message. Think about it. Every one of us here who has heard that message and responded affirmatively have done so because God sent somebody to us with this message. And now we, in turn, who have the message, as we will see, are entrusted to do the same to those around us. So as we look at this, the exclamation point, so to speak, back to Acts chapter 1, the exclamation point is that we're just not told to believe something without there being adequate or convincing proof. I am not told and you're not told to believe that Jesus rose from the dead without there to be absolutely convincing proof. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And in fact, in Acts 1.3, it says, To these, speaking to the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Think about that. How exciting that had to be to them to see Jesus alive after his crucifixion. 
to understand that he was beaten, to understand that he was tortured after his arrest, to understand all that he had gone through, and ultimately he was crucified, and no one ever in the history of the world lived through a crucifixion. Every person died. It was the death sentence of their day of Rome. Every person died. The difference is Jesus not only died, but that he rose again as he had promised that he would. And he convinced them by many convincing proofs. We saw the empty tomb. The official story of Rome was, hey, you know what? They stole his body. They stole his body, but you didn't punish the soldiers who were standing guard. It doesn't make any sense that you said that. They had to be able to refute that lie by saying, don't tell us the body was stolen. Don't tell us any of that. The body wasn't stolen because we saw the body. The body was alive. We talked to him. We spoke with him. We ate with him. We spent time with him. He taught us. We listened. We learned. And he is not missing. We know where he is. And man, they were excited about that. The miracles that followed. Not if that wasn't a great miracle in and of itself, but everything that he did afterwards to convince them that it was really him. And the appearances that he made. Not only to them, but there was one time he appeared to over 500 people. Could you imagine in a room like this, maybe we've got six, 700 people, but can you imagine 500 people all seeing Jesus after his death, resurrected and teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God? How are you going to discount that? How are you going to tell all those people they're crazy? They are seeing things. It's an apparition. They must have been hammered, loaded, smoke on something. It's like, whoa, you know, you're all nuts. No, we're not crazy. We saw them and we're convinced of it. In fact, we're so excited about it, we can't wait to go out and tell everybody. But now this is an interesting thing, which brings to the next point, and that's this. In verse 4 and 5, Jesus gathered them together, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. If you jump up to verse 8, it says, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Can you imagine? They were so excited, they couldn't wait to go out and tell people that Jesus rose from the dead. They were so excited, they couldn't wait to go out and tell everybody that, you know what, that God fulfilled his promise, The Savior has come. If you believe and trust in Him, you're no longer condemned by God. Therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Man, you know what? This is the greatest news the world ever heard. That God still loves people despite their rebellion. And all they've got to do is turn. The Bible says repent, which is turn from walking away from God and rebellion against God and turn to God and believe Him and trust in Him and His plan and Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. What a wonderful message that is to share with people. There's nothing else anybody has to do but give up their heart and surrender their stubborn pride and will to the plan of God. Man, that is great news. But notice this, in verse uh, 4 and 5 and also in verse 8, we're told of the might that they would receive or the power that they would receive. No, can you imagine how fired up they were, how excited they were at this point? They just, they just heard the message, they received the message, they saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead, they were excited to go out and tell everybody about him, and you know what Jesus said? Wait, you're not ready. They're like, we're not ready? you got to be kidding me. I, you know, we can't wait to get out and get it done. He said, no, you're not ready. They were tempted to go in the world in their own strength and tell people about Jesus. And he said, you're not ready to go. You got to wait. Wait for what? What was it they were waiting for? Why did they have to wait? You know, with, and, and the point is this: the principle that I learned from is this. With all, you know, if you think about, it, with all their enthusiasm, this must have seemed like a very strange command to wait. Yet it illustrates an important point. 
all the preparation and all the training that knowledge and experience can bring are useless without the proper might. Power had to accompany truth. And the power was provided or the might was provided by God himself to make certain that the apostles were not only motivated but also supernaturally empowered for their mission. Jesus commanded them to wait for that which the Father had promised. And the promise of God was the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told them, I must leave you. John chapter 14, John 16. He said, I've got to leave you. And the reason I've got to leave you is because when I leave, the, the, the Holy Spirit will be sent. The power of God, the might of God, the comforter will be sent. He will be sent to you. And it's interesting because throughout all the ages, and God's promise, as we'll see in our, our future uh, messages, fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, and it's critical the day that God sent and fulfilled the promise, which we're going to talk about. But the bottom line is the apostles, like all believers of all time, they knew and they had tasted of the power of the Spirit of God. In fact, at one point, Jesus had sent them out with these words in Matthew 10, 20. He says, it's not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. He had sent them out into the world to proclaim the message of God. To proclaim, as Jesus said, hey, the favorable day of the Lord. To preach the gospel. Proclaim release of the captives. To go and say, hey, God's plan has been fulfilled. And they were told, you know what, but don't count on your own strength to do that. So often in life when we go and we try to share God's message with other people, we, we overthink it to the point where we're thinking, I, I, you know, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? How am I going to share this? What, you know, what am I going to do? And we get all freaked out like, oh man, you know, I can't do this. And you're right. And I, you know, we can't do this. But what he was teaching them was to, to trust the Spirit of God who would empower them to do that which God had sent them out to do. Hey, listen, you know what? Don't take anything with you, he told them at that same, that same moment in time. Don't take anything. Just go out and trust God to provide for you. Trust God to give you the words. Trust God to move through His Spirit and the power of His Spirit. And as they shared with people and they saw the Spirit of God move, they were, they, they were just like astounded by that. The power of God. How many times have we seen that? You know, we often see that and hear that. And I hear people say all the time, you know, when you see somebody like a Billy Graham speak, and you see thousands of people respond to the message that I just shared with you. God loves people. Man separated from God. Jesus Christ died for you. Will you believe that? If so, come forward. And we see thousands of people, millions of people, they come down and they walk down to the field or they walk down to a front of the church or they walk wherever they are or they raise their hand or they pray in their hearts or whatever it is that they do. And we're all astounded because we go, wow, that wasn't a very dynamic message. You know, he didn't do the three-point thing that, you know, you learn in seminary. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, he didn't do this, that, and he didn't have the illustration and throw out the little thing here and that. And we all, they were dissecting it. And it's like, hey! The power is the message of God. The power is the Spirit of God moving in the hearts of people. The power is God, no speaker and nobody else. It's all God. God does it all. All He entrusts us to do is to open our mouths and share that with people that He brings into our life. The power, the might of God, the Spirit of God. You know, what's interesting is in that Luke passage, we saw that Jesus ministered in the power of the Spirit. He returned and ministered in the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that provides all the power. You know, and as we look at that, in fact, the word in Acts chapter uh, 1 where it talks about, you know, this power or this, this, uh, this might that he would have. The same word is used as we learn in Romans that had to do with uh, dunamis, which is the English word dynamite. Check this out. God's dynamite is the Spirit of God. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. The dynamite of God to just blow up a hard heart. Just blow up an iceberg. To blow up a person that says, I'm not interested in God. I'm not interested in spiritual things. I'm not interested in the Bible. I'm not interested in truth. I'm not interested in any of this junk at all. You can have it. I don't want any of it. And as we share that truth with a man, it's just like God goes, three, two, one, boom! I mean, I remember saying those things when people would share that with me. Shut up. I'm not interested. I don't want to hear this stuff. It's good for you. I'm glad you're happy. Whatever it is you're going through, it'll go away. Get away from me. And as I continued to share, it was like all of a sudden one day, boom, man, it's this explosion. It's like, man, okay, I can't fight this anymore. I can't argue against anything because, you know what, they've got all the solid arguments and I'm an idiot. It's like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Oh, contradiction in the Bible. Show me one. Never read it. Duh. Hey, that's a pretty solid argument. Okay, so, you know, and you just kind of go through and you go, man, you know what? I don't know anything. I don't know why I don't believe what I say that I don't believe. I don't know why I don't want anything to do with God. I don't know why I want to read the Bible. I don't know why I don't want to go to church. I don't know why about any of this stuff other than the fact that I'm just thinking, hey, if God really exists, he'll probably change my life. Now, why would I want to do that even though it's all screwed up, messed up, and I could use a better one? But, you got to go, hey, I don't want anything to do with it. Now, notice this in this Acts passage. He said to these, where he goes on to gather them together, commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for, the Father, for what the Father had promised, which he said you had heard from me. Now, here's the, here's the thing. John baptized with water. Seven out of eight times that baptism is mentioned in the Bible, it's mentioned as contrast to water baptism. Let me explain. It's very simple. Because most of us know about baptism. Either you've been in backgrounds where you baptize children, or you've been in backgrounds where you baptize, you know, your church is the thing that you did in your church, or you've heard of it. But, you know, is there anybody here that really has never heard of baptism? So, the reality of it is, Jesus knew that they had all heard of baptism. John baptized with water. And John baptized with water, and somebody always did the baptism. Follow this? Externally, it was, a, it, was a symbol, it was symbolic of a person who wanted to have their sins removed from them. But internally, it never happened because it was an external thing. Now, what the contrast is this. While John baptized with water, Jesus was coming, and John made the statement. He says, one is coming after me who I'm not even, I'm, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He is coming after me, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. One baptized in water, external. Jesus baptized in the Holy Spirit, which was internal. Which was a change from inside to outside. When I was baptized as a child, it was a water baptism. And you know what? It didn't change my rebellious heart against God. Grew up with the same rebellious heart. The only difference was that, you know, at one point I was wet. What, I didn't even remember it, but I saw pictures of it. And I think that was me, but I look different now. Um, so I'm not sure. But... But the point is this, even as adults sometimes, people mistake water baptism for forgiveness of sin to where the joke is basically this. If you go into the water a dry sinner, you come out of the water a wet sinner. But nothing changes in our heart. Well, Jesus said you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God would now live within you, change you from the inside out. I am who I am today because the Spirit of God changed me from the inside out, not the outside in. It doesn't work that way. And the other important thing is this, is that John baptized people, people baptized people in water, 
But Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. One who is coming after me will baptize you in the Spirit of God. Jesus is the one who baptizes all believers in the Spirit of God. In Titus 3, you can read about it. The washing or the regeneration that takes place of the Holy Spirit of God who changes our rebellious hearts from the inside to now where we live a life on the outside that reflects who we now have become on the inside. So as we look at this power or this might that we're given, we're seeing that, you know what, the bottom line is is that the power is all given to us by God. Now, what's interesting is, you know, I talk to people, and in the, in the position that I'm in, I get to meet a lot of different people from all over the country, and, you know, we do chapels and things like that, you know, the angels, rams, all that kind of stuff. And you meet a whole bunch of different people with a whole lot of different beliefs. And what was always fascinating to me was I ran into uh, some people once who said, you know what, well, you have, to, you have to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I said, no, you don't. Why would you say that? Well, because there are people who say, well, it's pretty obvious when you read the book of Acts, man, this world was changed, turned upside down by people who had come to faith in Christ. Their lives were changed, man. They were living dynamic lives, and what they said they believed was demonstrating how they lived. They turned their world upside down. Well, today, though, a person comes to faith in Christ, and the Bible says at that moment in time we are baptized by the, into, into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God, at that moment in time, anybody and everybody who's ever trusted in Christ instantly were given the presence of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1. And the reason that people come up with, well, there must be something that we're missing, so we've got to ask God for something bigger and better than what He's already given us, is because we're not living dynamic lives. Only certain people do and certain people don't, even though we've all come to faith who have come to faith in Christ, have been given the same spirit and the same power of God living within us. Some of us are living that life in a way that's dynamic to the world around us. So those who aren't say there must be something different. And that is, oh, I know, those are people who have received the baptism of the spirit and we haven't, so we must pray for it. No, that's not correct. Every person that's trusted in Christ has received the spirit of God. The power of God lives within us. It's a question question of whether or not he has us not whether we have him and that's why the bible talks about being filled with the spirit and walking according to the spirit and not presenting yourself as instruments of righteousness or keep living in sin but turning from sin and living toward god so the power of god and the, and the might of god will be demonstrated through our lives as as we have through him overcome all our lives so to speak excuse the french but the bottom line is this, is that you know, we need to live obedient lives. And as we, as I challenged them this morning, as we live obedient lives before the world and before our friends and before our family, and we can see the power of God that frees us from all of the stuff that held us captive, the world then goes, wow, what is it about you? And then we've got a place to stand and a place to share. The mystery that we see here in verses 6 and 7 is kind of fascinating because as we look at this, we're going to see that there was some confusion about what they were supposed to be doing. Notice he says, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? The connective thought is this. They understood that when God poured his spirit upon the world, that it was the same time that Jesus would establish, or Messiah would establish his kingdom upon the earth. You following this? They tied in the, the, the pouring of the spirit of God into the world as associating it with the day or the time that Jesus, Messiah, would set up his kingdom here on earth. So they knew when Jesus said, the promise that the Father had given you is going to take place, 
the Spirit of God will be poured out upon you, they had a natural question, which was, so does that mean that God's kingdom will now be established? This is really important because we know that he had been teaching them about the kingdom of God. He had been telling them there is a day coming where Jesus Christ will return and he will establish his kingdom here on this earth, a literal, physical kingdom here on this earth. He's going to do that. And they understood that because he had just explained it to them. But what they didn't understand was the timing of all of it. So if the Spirit's poured, then that means the kingdom will be established. And here's what Jesus said. He said, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. His answer to them was very simple. You know what? It's not for you to know when that will take place. It's not for us to know it either. We get people all the time. You know, I hear this all the time. Do you think Jesus is coming soon? Yeah. So? And, what's, and what, 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 what does that mean? Well, I just did something fun to talk about. So, well, yeah, it might be something fun to talk about, but you know what? We're not even supposed to be talking about his timing when he's coming. Why? Well, because we're clearly instructed right here in Acts chapter 1. We're not even to know what the timing is, but notice what he says. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall what? Be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The bottom line is, is Jesus is returning, and he will establish his kingdom. But also, Jesus warned on several occasions. In Mark 13, for example, in verse 33 through 37, he says this, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you don't know when the appointed time is. It's like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. You don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Catch anyone? Find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Notice what he said. He said, look, he's coming back, but it's not important when he comes back whether it's the morning or afternoon or evening, what the signs of His coming are and all those things, none of that's important because He has assigned each one of us with a task to finish the work that He began to share the message to the world. And the task, He said, is very simple or the mission that He gives is one that every one of us need to understand. Whenever we start speculating on, oh, when is Jesus coming back, the point we've got to ask ourselves is this, is, is speculating on when Jesus is coming back getting in the way of what we're supposed to be doing until he comes back. And what are we supposed to be doing? Rather than waste time and useless speculation, notice what he says, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You notice that? Rather than waste time speculating on when he's going to establish his kingdom, when that's all going to take place, the apostles and subsequently all believers are to focus on the work at hand, finishing the work that Jesus began. And how was this going to occur? The key word is this, witnesses. You and I are to be his witnesses. What does the term mean? It means very simple. You and I are to tell people the message that we had heard and the message that we had received. That man is a sinner, separated from God, judged and condemned by God, on the road to hell. God loves people, sent Jesus to die for them, demonstrated that he was able to forgive their sins by raising them from the dead. And if you would believe him and trust in him, that you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the message that we're to share. We're to be his witnesses. Now some of us go, but I don't know much about the Bible. 
I don't know much about Greek. I don't know much about Hebrew. I don't know much about Aramaic. I don't know much about all, you know, perpetuation and substitution. And I don't know much about any of that stuff. Hey, let me tell you something. You don't have to know any of that. All you've got to know about is, hey, did you hear the message? Have you received the message? And what's happened in your life? A witness is not an expert witness. He doesn't call us to be expert, and you shall be my expert witnesses. He says, you shall just be my witnesses. All you got to do is tell people what Jesus has done in your life. If you have experienced His forgiveness, and you've experienced a change in your life, all you got to do is say, you know what? I used to be a real creep. In fact, sometimes I still am a creep, but I'm a forgiven creep, and I'm working, and I'm working toward a lot less creepiness. But, but all we, that's all we got to just share with people. Hey, have you come to faith in Christ? How? Why? When? What were the circumstances? Who shared the gospel with you? When did you realize you were a sinner? When did you repent of your sin? When did you turn from sin and turn to God? When did you receive Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and your Savior? What has He done in your life since then? You don't have to know anything about the Bible to know what Christ has done in your life. I know I've shared a story, but I keep coming back to this, man. This is the greatest story I've ever heard. It was a guy who was at a conference that we were at who had just recently come to faith in Christ. Everybody's sitting around the room, man, excited, telling people about what their life used to be like, how they heard the gospel, how they responded to it, what God has done in their life since. And there was a range group just like this of, of people with different experiences, of people that have come to faith in Christ years and years ago, and people like him who had just come to faith not only but two or three days ago. And it was his turn to speak, and they're going around the room, hey, what do you got to say? He goes, man, I am happier than hell to be here today. And man, it was beautiful. Everyone was sitting around going, this is great. He doesn't know how to express it, but he, he knew. He knew that something had changed in his life. And what's amazing to me is, you know, you share a story like that in a church group, and you know, people sit in the church and go, oh, he just said happier than hell. <laughs> we got to pray for him. We must pray for him. Instead of rejoicing that a person who was lost had been, had been found, a person who was dead spiritually had come to life, a person who was on his way to an eternal destiny separated from God was now forgiven by the grace of God and had come to faith in Christ, was now a child of God who had inherited eternal life and spent an eternity with God. Instead of getting excited about that, we all go, did he just say hell? Man, you know, and we've got to realize that our mission is a very simple mission, and that is to go and tell the world about Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. I heard I was a sinner. I acknowledged that I was a sinner. I knew that I was a sinner. I didn't know it was called sinner, but once I figured it out, I understood very clearly what I was doing in my life was wrong before God. I acknowledged that. I recognized that. I turned from that. I turned to God and said, forgive me. For I am as you say that I am. I am a sinner. And I don't understand all of this, but I believe it from my heart that Jesus Christ came and died for me. That He rose from the dead. That He ascended into heaven. That He intercedes even at this moment for those who have trusted in Him. You know, I don't understand all of those things. And at that time, I didn't understand anything about the Bible. But I knew my heart was different. I knew my thoughts were different. I knew my desires were different. I knew that I now, when I tried to do the things I used to do, I, I couldn't do it anymore because I felt guilty about it. It was like the voice inside me, the Spirit of God, saying, hey, you can't do that stuff anymore. Okay, what am I supposed to do? Well, that's what the instruction of the Word of God is. Here's what you're now supposed to do. Here's what you now want to do. You want to live a life that's pleasing to God instead of a life that was pleasing to yourself.
We're different. We're no longer the same. The power of God, the dynamite of God, boom, blows up in our heart. And we become children of God to those who believe in His name. In fact, the word witness is an exciting word because it's a word that we get actually our English word martyr from. I want you to stop and think about something. You know another reason I believe that Jesus Christ is alive, that He rose from the dead? Because 11 of these 12 sissy boys that ran away from Him at the time when He was arrested, at the time where He was crucified, when they were hiding from Him, all 11 of these 12 guys, you know what? After they received the power of God, the might of God, the Spirit of God, you know what they did? They went into the world and they proclaimed that Jesus Christ was alive. They proclaimed the message that we're all sinners and we need to be forgiven and Jesus Christ died for our sins and if you trust in Him, you'll be forgiven. They went into the world and they challenged people with the message of God and you know what? 11 out of the 12 of those men went to their deaths proclaiming Jesus Christ as Savior the world. These sissy boys that were hiding from everybody, including a little servant girl, would then go out into the world and to their death? Let me tell you something. There have been people in the history of this world who have died for a lie, but they didn't know it was a lie. There's been never anyone in the history of the world that would die knowing what they were dying for was a lie. Who would die to save the reputation of Jesus Christ if he was a liar and an imposter? They ran from Him when He was arrested. They ran from Him when He was crucified. They ran from Him when He was put into the grave. Why in the world would they then stand out before everybody and stick up, stick up for a guy who was a liar if He was? Eleven of those twelve men died martyrs' deaths and we get our word martyr from that word witness. They signed their death certificates with their own blood. They said, deny Jesus Christ as your Savior. And they said, we can't do it. We saw Him alive then you're going to die. Well, then we're going to die. And you know what's awesome about that? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Man, we're winners. Bingo, hold your cards. (laughs) How can you go wrong, man? I mean, think about it. It's like, okay, let me see if I get this straight. You know, you're throwing me in a dungeon. I'm living in this slop right here. I'm counting on people bringing me food. It's freezing cold. And you're telling me you're going to kill me so that I can get out of here and be with the Lord. Now, how is that a, a bad thing? You know, because the power of God, the Spirit of God, the might of God sustained them in their time when they faced their ultimate death. That's exciting. And John, by the way, was exiled to Patmos, so you know he didn't exactly have a rosy uh, condition afterwards either. But the bottom line of all of it is the mission was this, that they went into the world boldly proclaiming Jesus. After all, they heard and believed the message they saw and spent time with the risen Savior. And as we'll see, they received the power and the might of the Spirit of God. And we'll look at that in in a future session. But the outline of the book of Acts, by the way, is found right here in verse 8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's the outline that we're going to follow through our study of the book of Acts. Starting in Jerusalem, moving to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the outermost parts of the earth. I like that. Remember we're talking about being a light to the world, salt, so to speak. Well, here's the bottom line is this. The light that shines the furthest burns the brightest at home. You ready for that? The light that shines the furthest burns the brightest at home. And the reason I share that with you is I came across this story, and let me share this with you. So a nurse took a tired young Marine from a waiting room to the bedside. Your son is here, she said to the old man in the oxygen tent. She had to repeat the words several times before the patient's eyes opened. Heavily sedated because of the pain from his heart attack, he dimly saw the young man in the Marine Corps uniform standing outside the oxygen tent. He reached out his hand. The Marine wrapped his toughened fingers around the old man's limp hand, squeezing a message of love and encouragement. The nurse brought a chair so the Marine could sit beside the bed. Nights are long in hospitals, but all through the night, the young man, a Marine, sat there in the poorly lighted ward, holding the old man's hand and offering words of love and strength. 
Occasionally, the nurse would suggest that the Marine move away and rest for a while, but he refused. Whenever the nurse came into the ward, the Marine was oblivious to her and the, and the night noises of the hospital, the clanking of the oxygen tanks, the laughter of the night staff members exchanging greetings as they changed shifts, and cries and moans of the other patients. Now and then she heard him say a few gentle words. The dying man said nothing, only held on tightly to his son's hand all through the night. Along about dawn, the old man died, and the Marine released the lifeless hand he had been holding all night and went to tell the nurses. He waited while she did what she had to do, and finally she returned. She started to offer words of sympathy about losing his father, but the young man and the Marine interrupted her, saying, Well, that's not necessary, ma'am. He was not my father. Who was he? The nurse was startled and said, I thought he was your father. He said, No, he wasn't. He says, I never saw him before in my life until you came and brought me to his bedside. She said, Then why didn't you say something when I took you to him? He said, I realized that right away there had been a mistake, but I also knew that he needed his son and his son wasn't here yet. When I realized he was too sick to tell whether or not I was a son, I knew how much he needed his son, so I stayed. You know, I, I, I read of, of stories like this, and I begin to realize that, you know, I often hear of people share how they're going to tell people about Jesus, people that they've never met. They're going to go into the world and tell people about Jesus, people they've never met. And yet God brings people into our life every day. And we don't say anything to them. People we say we love, people we say we care about, people that are condemned before God, people that are in rebellion against God, people that ultimately will spend an eternity separated from God. And we say we love them and care for them. We're always going to tell someone about Jesus that we've never met. But we don't share with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our employees, our employers, our classmates or our teammates, the people who cut our hair, the people who pump our gas, the people who do work around our house, the people we come in contact with every day. But we sit around talking about, when do you think Jesus is coming back? Have you read the latest book that's out? Have you read the 25th version of the series? <laughs> Have you done this or done that? I'm not saying you shouldn't read any of that. I'm just saying, you know what, the bottom line is this. You know, what's really important? We speculate on all kinds of things that really don't make any difference because, you know what, it's all going to happen when it happens and we're going to be a part of it if we've trusted in Christ. But the people that we don't share with, they're not going to be part of it because we've never shared the message with them so that they have a choice of whether to respond or reject him. I guess my challenge is, talking out loud with you, is that when am I going to become more serious about the message that's been entrusted to me to finish the work that Jesus began? And you shall be, not you may be, you could be, you should be, you shall be my witnesses. And you're going to start at home and you're going to work out from there and you're going to go into the outermost parts of the world and tell people how much God loves them. You shall be my witnesses. And you know what? And we don't have to worry about being afraid to do it because He has not given us a spirit of timidity but one of power and might. God provides the dynamite to blow up hard hearts. Sometimes I wonder, 
You know, it's like, I met with a guy this past week, I'm starting to do a one-on-one Bible study with, and you know what the, the, the most incredible thing to me was, and it was a guy that, that I know through baseball, and he came to chapel, and he sat there, and I would share stuff, you know, man, this is truth of God, and I would see him fiddling with his feet, and I'd see him, you know, looking around, and kind of like a lot of you people do, you know, <laughs> kind of like, you know, just kind of like, is this over yet, is it done yet, and, uh, and we started to meet. He had given his life to Christ. And he said, you know, I remember something you said three years ago in one of our chapels. I'm like, what? Really? And it reminded me that, you know what? It's God's truth and his power and his might. We don't have to be experts at many things. All we've got to do is share what we know for a fact that has happened in our life. You know, and I think, wow, you know what? I mean, the mission is just to tell people. God does all the rest. And he doesn't even hold us responsible for their decision. It's not like you've got to you know, convince or persuade 100 people so that you get over the top. You know, God's not running some kind of a, what do they call it, multi-level marketing program here. Hey, if you can get 100 people to sign up underneath you, you know, you're going to have a bigger place in the kingdom of God. It's like, hey, you know what? They're responsible individually. All we're responsible to do is to share the truth with them. We're not responsible even to close the deal because only God can do that, the Spirit of God moving in the hearts of man. The motive that we're given to do the job is a very simple one. Notice this in verse 9. And after he had said these things, man, these are the last things that Jesus said. You think we'd pay more attention to them. The last things that he said. Go into the world and you'll be my witnesses. Just tell people about me. That's all you got to do. That's your job. Nothing else. Any questions? Don't understand? What did I say that you didn't get? After he said these things, he was lifted up. And while they were looking on, and a cloud received them out of their sight. It says, and as we're gazing intently, the word has to do with like their jaws dropped. I mean, you can imagine. As he ascends right before them, they're like, huh? It's like, wow. It says, gazing intently, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Two angels, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking intently into the sky? I can just imagine, why do you stand there looking so stupid? It's like, you know, didn't he just tell you what you're supposed to do? Get going and get to it. It's like, he said, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Our motivation is we're to be busy finishing the work that Jesus began because just as he left us, he shall come again one day. And when he comes, not only will he come with rewards to those of us who are faithful in serving him, but he will come to judge us for the purpose of offering those rewards to his faithful servants. For we must all who are in Christ appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us will have rendered unto us that which has been earned, so to speak, by being faithful in the kingdom of God. Take life serious. To realize how short life really is, think of life as a span of 75 years. A single day from 7 a.m. to 11 o'clock. Give yourself this self-test as we, as we close. If your age is 15, the time is 10.25 a.m. If you're 20, it's 11.34 a.m. If you're 25, the time is 12.42 p.m. 30, the time is 1.51. 35, the time is 3 o'clock. And if you're 40, the time is 4.08 if you're 45, the time is 5.16. If you're 50, the time is 6.25. If you're 55, the time is 7.34. And if you're 60, the time is 8.42. If you're 65, the time is 9.51. If you're 70, the time is 11 o'clock. And if you're older than that, 
Do the math. You're on borrowed time. But you know, when I saw this, I realized that we need to develop a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency that, you know what, we don't know when the appointed time is, not only for Jesus to return, but also for the end of our lives. It's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. The judgment for those who have never trusted in Christ is called the great white throne judgment, the last judgment that you'll experience before you are separated from God for all of eternity. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, it's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes judgment, the great bema seat judgment of Christ, where we will be judged for our faithfulness in this life that God has given us. He has entrusted to each one of us the message. We can believe it because he has risen from the dead. He has given us the power and the might to do what he's asked us to do, which is to be his witnesses throughout the world. The great motivation of all of us is time is short. We need to get busy finishing the work that Jesus has begun. Father, we just thank you for this time to be together. I pray for those who have maybe not come to faith in Christ at this point, that they would recognize the truth of the word of God, that they're sinners condemned before God that they're in rebellion against God. And God, I just pray that you will, you will just blow up their hard hearts so that they would recognize their sinfulness. God, I just pray that they would be, through you, motivated to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. God, and for those of us who have received Christ at different points in our, time, in our lives throughout our history, as we've received him once in a moment of time and as he's continued to do a work in each of our lives, I just pray that we would have a sense of urgency in sharing the message that's been entrusted to us that man is separated from God and in need of forgiveness. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, help us to share that message and the power of your spirit and the words that you give us to those who come in contact with us on a regular basis. God, may we be faithful as we await the day that either Jesus returns or he calls us home. And we just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.